Breitbart News Daily. Thanks for being here. Today was the hardest day to get out of bed, wasn't it? There's, today, it's got to be. It's got to be the worst day. Like uh, When you get back to work after Christmas break, there's like a new year, new me vibe. <laughs> Ready to conquer the world. Today, it was same year, same me. <laughs> Don't really want to do it. Kind of want to just stay here. But alas, got to get up, got to move. I'm grateful that uh, you're here and you're a part of it. I'm feeling better now. The show's over. Now we're, we got one show under our belt. We're already moving and we're, uh, we're up to speed. Just took a while to get going. Acceleration was, was slow today. Um, we're going to play the, we're going to talk to Francis Martel coming up because we got to talk about Ireland. That's a little, take a little peek into the crystal ball uh, of, of where we're headed with Ireland. Argentina. Uh, talk about the Houthis taking over the tanker. Uh, and then uh, Israel, of course, the latest with the hostages there. So tons of international stuff that we I just had to get squared away on. Uh, so we talked to Francis. She's amazing. There's no one better than Francis. So we'll do that in just a minute. Uh, I want to play for you the segment we did uh, because I heard a new word the other day. Parasitopolis. What in the world is that? Well, it's one of the stages of the lifespan of a city and a people. What stage are we in? We go over the six of them. Here it is. I uh, got a couple emails on this point. Well done, everyone who did. Well done. We talked earlier about a voting machine glitch in Pennsylvania. A glitch. It's just a glitch. Sure, you punch it on the screen to vote for someone, and the paper that prints out is of some says you voted for someone completely different. But don't worry, it's just a glitch. Just a, glitch. a little programming glitch. Don't be no, just a glitch. They just wave it away, calling it a glitch. Oh, it's a glitch. Oh, okay, fine, no big deal. Just a glitch. And uh, a couple of people wrote me an email uh, Slater. Maybe the machines had a mishap. Oh, yeah, it's just a mishap. No big deal. Just like the five. Special operations guys who uh, were killed in that helicopter mishap in the Mediterranean Sea. That's just a mishap. Five Americans died? That's horrible. Oh, it was a mishap? Okay, no big deal then. Votes aren't properly uh, tabulated? That's awful. Oh, it's a glitch? Okay, no big deal. Glitches and mishaps everywhere. That is the sign of a empire in decline which is the theme of this segment of the show because i came across a word i never heard before the other day parasitopolis we'll go with si. parasitopolis parasitopolis hmm. what does this word mean so in ancient greece the word for city was polis p-o-l-i-s but a polis was more than just a geographical area it was a sort of a social contract between people. The idea of a polis. It was more than just a place. It was, it was bigger than that. But the word means city. So a parasitopolis is a city or a people in which everyone is dependent on the government. Parasite. Everyone is a parasite on the city. And obviously this can't survive. Parasitopolis. So this term comes from this historian, Lewis Mumford, in 1961, he wrote a book called The Culture of Cities. And he talks about the life stages of cities and people. I was going to say cycle. I hesitated for a second, but it's not really a, it's not necessarily a cycle. It could be a cycle. We'll get to that, but it's not necessarily a cycle. It could just be the, the end of it. <laughs> the city is now gone and it doesn't come back from the ashes. Sometimes it does. We hope ours does, but sometimes it doesn't. So can we go over, can we take some time here just to go over the, uh, the different stages? And there's six of them. I think it's interesting, and we can, uh, we can talk about which one we're in. So stage one is the rise of the village community. This is the very, the very basics. All right, we're going to start growing food. We're going to domesticate some animals. We're going to build some houses. Very basics. All right, check done. We got that. The pilgrims did that. The pilgrims. Very grateful for the pilgrims. By the way, on uh, my podcast, Politics by Faith, we spent last week talking about the pilgrims and how to live a more, more pilgrim uh, lifestyle. And that doesn't mean 
like with the funny hats and, you know, canning your vegetables or whatever pilgrims did. Uh, more having a, a posture of a pilgrim. But anyway, um, all right, so that's the first stage. Second stage, the, uh, the polis. An association of villages have a common site that lends itself to defense against attack. A common deity with a common shrine or temple. A common meeting place where the special products and skills of the larger community may be interchanged in markets. A rise in industrial productivity through the more systemic, excuse me, systematic division of labor and the partial specialization of functions. The development of trade and crafts. Surplus of manufactured goods and a surplus of food. All right, so things are, uh, things are thriving here. We're growing. We got a couple different people all around. Like we're all spread out, but we come together for a market day and we trade and we're growing and you're the baker and you're, right? Instead of you doing everything, you're the blacksmith, right? So we got, a, we got the rise of a, of a city here. It's good. Things are going good. Uh, free energy, free time. Release from incessant preoccupation with physical survival. Opportunity for further nurture of the family, for education, for the cultivation of the body in military and athletic exercise. Discipline of the mind and contemplation and dialectics and science, the practice of the humane arts. All right, so we can like do stuff other than just survive. And we can do stuff and we can build stuff. Erection of special buildings that collectively embody new cultural and political functions. The temple, the stadium, the theater. Guild Hall, Cathedral, the rise of the school as an organ for systematically transmitting elements of social heritage to the young. Increase of cultural storage by means of sculpted figures, painted images, monuments, books. By the way, are we ever going to build a Statue of Liberty again? Keep that one in mind as we get to the, the stage that we're in today. Could you ever fathom this country building a statue of liberty ever again now we didn't build the statue of liberty the french did but whatever could you could would we ever do that no we don't we don't build things anymore we don't build grand awesome things we don't i, I just came across the other day some old pictures of the statue of liberty and how it was being built and some close-up pictures it was actually a picture from the torch you're not allowed in the torch anymore but uh this is a picture from the torch looking down on the crown of the statue of liberty it's like oh that's so cool and um When's the last statue that was built? George Floyd. That was like, that's who we are now. Ridiculous statue. Or no, the one when they one of Martin Luther King Jr. And it looks like uh like a you know what? In New York City. It's like this horrific abomination of a statue of Martin Luther King Jr. Like that's who we are now. We don't build anything awesome. Uh let's see here. Preservation of rural occupations and rural customs, including the practice of piety towards ancestors. And the polis remains a collection of families. So you're still centered around the family, but you're doing, uh, you're doing big things now. Things are looking good. That sounds nice. I like, I like that stage. That sounds like a really good stage. We got some specialization of skills. We're building some things. We got some time for education and the arts and working out. And th that's good. Third stage, metropolis. So now you got uh, a country with one city rising above them all. It's the mother city. I guess this would be New York City, right? And uh, but it grows beyond what it can, can it can sustain. Like it, it can't sustain itself, so it relies on other people to bring in food and water and things into the city. Now, in order to do that, though, like New York City can't grow its own food. But now you're bringing in people from not only different towns in the same country, but you're bringing in people from different countries. This historian. From 1961, he says a foreign population of traders and students entered the metropolis. That's the third stage, metropolis. Unabsorbed as citizens at first, they bring the shock of fresh habits and ideas and also challenges to old ways. Religion, literature, and drama reach the stage of self-conscious criticism. That's the main thing. That's, um, that's all this woke stuff. Critical theory. Right? Like everything's got to be deconstructed. Every part of the environment and the culture is deliberately remolded. Hmm. A similar refocusing takes place in every other department of life. The emancipation from fixed patterns and stereotyped routines. Okay. So things in the metropolis, they're getting, uh, they're getting too big. They're getting too diverse. Actually, it's more like they're getting too diverse. 
Uh, things are changing. We're, we're questioning everything too much. We're challenging. We're criticizing everything that exists, everything that is good, everything that got us to this phase. That's the metropolis, stage three. All right, stage four, megalopolis. This historian says this is the beginning of the decline. The city, under the influence of a capitalistic mythos, concentrates upon bigness and power. The owners of the instruments of production and distribution subordinate every other fact in life to the achievement of riches and the display of wealth. So nothing else in life matters. It's just, it's just bigger and just stuff. So I think that we've, we've done this phase, I would argue, uh, where we've, we've ignored the even concept of a soul. There is no such thing as the soul. It's just uh, we, all we think about is prosperity, which is money. It's all money. It's all economic. The agricultural base extends. The lines of supply become. There, there's no even connection to community anymore. It's all about uh, how can we get more stuff for less money, cheaper. We need cheaper, just more. We need more, more, more stuff. Even if it's crap from China, we'll sell out because there's no other value that exists at all. There's, there's no concept of the country. There's no concept of Americans. It's just stuff. And we're going to sell out for stuff. The agricultural base extends. The lines of supply become more tenuous. Uh, is the impulse to aggressive enterprise grows as the lust for power diminishes the attraction of all other attributes of life. Knowledge, divorced from life. Industry, divorced from life utility. Life itself compartmentalized, dispecialized, finally disorganized and enfeebled. The city as a means of association, as a haven for culture, becomes a means of disassociation and a growing threat to real culture. That's great. So like, like New York City, whatever used to be, the cultural mecca and now it's the place where culture goes to die, where culture gets destroyed. And where it used to go to the city to, to connect with people, now it's a, you, you, there's nowhere more lonely than the big cities. Smaller, city, smaller cities are drawn into the megalotopian mega network. They practice the megalopolis vices and even sink to lower levels because of the lack of higher institutions of learning and culture that still persist in the bigger centers. Be like Newark, I guess. The threat of widespread barbarism arises. I just saw a video just during the break of some school. I don't know where it was. And uh, the kids were beating up one of the police officers in the school. School resource officers. Just beating them from behind, knocking them in the head. Uh, all right, there you go. So that's the fourth stage. Megalopolis. Okay, we got two more stages. Fifth stage. I don't know how to pronounce these words. Tyrannopolis, Tyrannopolis, tyranny, Tyrannopolis. Extensions of parasitism throughout the economic and social scene. The function of spending paralyzes all the higher activities of culture. Politics becomes competition for the exploitation of the municipal and state by this class or group. Mm. Read an article the other day about how uh, Black Lives Matter did an unbelievably effective job of parasiting money from government. Like, oh, hire us and we'll be your diversity, equity, inclusion czars, all that kind of nonsense. And it was just about getting government money. And they did a great job of exploiting the people for that. Widespread moral apathy and failure of civic responsibility. Oh, man, that's it right there, isn't it? Widespread moral apathy, like, ah, whatever. Morality, who's to say? And failure of civic responsibility, that's personal responsibility. Each group, each individual takes what it can get away with. Multiplication of a, how about this word? Lumpen proletariat. More on that in a second. Demanding its share of bread and shows. That would be bread and circuses, right? The overstress of mass sports, parasitic love of sinecures in every department of life. It'd be like a, what's a sinecure? Like some, something that, uh, that, ail, that uh, solves your woes. Uh, demand for protection money made by armed thugs, thugs 
organized looting, hmm. demoralization of life. Has there ever been a time in our life, in our culture, where there's been more, more of this idea that there is no American dream? And there's, there's been more depression and suicide and all these deaths of despair. That's a term. That's just like a new term I've never heard before the last couple of years. Deaths of despair. What? Did the depression? We, we lived in an era that we called the Great Depression. And I never remember hearing anything about suicide in it. Uncertainty hangs over every prospect of the future. This is the first generation in our history where... Kids don't think that they're, they will live a better life than their parents, and they don't think that their kids will live a better life than them. That would be uncertainty hanging over the future. Decline in rate of population increase through birth control, abortion, mass slaughter, and suicide. That's it. Our, um, our birth rate in America is under the replacement rate. We're like one six. You got to be 2.1. Every woman has to have 2.1 kids in order to keep the population the same. And we're at 1.6 in America. The only reason we go up in population is because of immigration. So we have a decline in the rate of population increase. Now, we don't, we don't have a decline in the rate of population increase. We have a decline in the rate of population. Oh, yeah, there's the next one. Eventual absolute decline in numbers. Okay, that's where we are. General loss of nerve. Again, this is a book from 1961. It's called The Culture of Cities, Lewis Mumford. It's talking about the different... Stages of a city, the culture of cities. We're on stage five right now, the Tyranopolis, Tyranopolis. Uh, the rise of superstition and deliberate cult of savagery. You're gonna, this is the era, this is the month, I should say, where you're gonna get all these stories about uh, like devil worshipers setting up their, their little shrines next to Christmas trees at the courthouse. Uh, but it's more than that. I mean, with all these people who are all about like the astrology and all this nonsense. Barbarian invasions from within and without. Beginnings of megalotopian exodus. Ooh, we've had a lot of that too. People leaving uh, New York, people leaving LA, California. Lapses of cultural continuity. Repression and censorship, the stopping of productive work in the arts and sciences. Man, that's it, isn't it? Isn't that it? I wonder how many people, peoples who have lived in these stages could have pinpointed it while they were living in the middle of it. You know what I mean? Or can you only do it looking back? Like every society that's lived in the fifth stage of a of a city, could they be? Could they? Are they in it? And they're like, "Oh, guys, we're in the Tyrannopolis stage." It's good, right? I don't know. Most people don't even know until you look back. And you're like, "Oh, yeah, that was the Tyrannopolis." Well, I, I think maybe they can. Maybe they did know. We know. <laughs> like how many of those rung way too true? All right. So what's next? Later, I think that's where I think we're in the fifth stage. So here's the sixth stage. And then we'll get to the good news. There is. There's hope. Necropolis. It's dead. War and famine and disease rack city and countryside. The physical towns become mere shells. Oh, we spent last, the week before I was off, we, we spent the last show talking about the demise of the small town. Again, we'll get to the good news in a minute. There are those who remain in them, uh, excuse me, those who remain in them are unable to carry out on the old municipal services or maintain the old civic life. What remains of that life is at best a clumsy caricature. The names persist, the reality vanishes. The monuments and books no longer convey meaning. Yeah, we've torn down all the monuments. The old routine of life involves too much effort to carry on. The streets fall into disrepair, grass grows in the cracks of the pavement. The viaducts break down. The water mains become empty. The rich shops once looted remain empty of goods. The historic culture survives, if at all, in the providences and remote villages which share the, collap share the collapse but are not completely carried down by it or submerged into debris. This is what we talked about a couple weeks ago too with deep France. France, France profound. Profound. Deep France. 
the idea that uh, as crazy as Paris gets, there will still be these little towns dotted across France that still maintain true deep, uh, true French culture. And we have the same concept in America. We call it real America. Sarah Palin called it real America. And people used to mock her for it, but it's a real thing. It's the idea of the small town that maintains its Americanness. And as crazy as the cities get and as the, the cities turn into Tyrannopolises and eventually necropolises, we could still revert back to the small town values that hopefully have remained in places across this country. Let me read this last part. Uh, the living forms of an ancient city become a tomb for dying. Sand sweeps over the ruins. So Babylon, Nineveh, Rome, in short, Necropolis, the city of the dead, flesh turned to ashes, life turned into a meaningless pillar of salt. Whew. Sounds pretty bad. So that's where we're headed. So those are the six stages. I think we're in stage five. We're in stage five. So you're thinking, okay, well, how do we not get to stage six? So he says there's two, two things that can happen, and then we'll get to the ways. We're going to take a break, if we can even have time for it. Maybe we'll have to save the way. Oh, no, I, can't, I don't want to save it for tomorrow. Here's the two things that can happen. You can, have, you can have a resurgence in these places. So you can have, uh, here it is, cities can take on new life by a trans, transplantation of tissues from healthy communities in other regions or civilizations. So people from Nebraska move into New York City and revive New York City and make New York City or whatever, as a metaphor, to what it used to be. Okay, so that's one thing. So the city can be revived or it just moves to, there's a new shoot that opens up somewhere else across the country. So Nashville or uh, Greenville or whatever, like different cities pop up, new cities pop up or become alive. Uh, I read an article the other day about Miami becoming the new financial capital of America. I don't know if that will happen, but like that's the idea, like a new shoot of growth somewhere uh, somewhere else in the country as New York City uh, just goes away and other cities uh, build up. So those are the two things that can happen moving forward. It is possible to stop this demise. That is the important part. That's the hopeful part. And that is what we will talk about next. We can take your uh, phone call to 866-95-PATRIOT, 866-95-PATRIOT. Which of these stages do you think we're in? I think I don't even know if that's worth being a question. I think we're all, I think we're all in agreement we're in stage five. Back to Breitbart News Daily. No one's better than Frances Martel. She's the Breitbart News World Editor. Frances, how are you today? Doing great. Um, ate a little too much stuffing. That's really my only complaint. Still feeling <laughs> the, whole, the whole thing. Feeling all of it. Um, I got three big things to chat about, Frances, that I need your expertise on. I need to get caught up, if nothing else. Uh, Israel, Argentina, Ireland. That'll be our tour of the world today. Uh, let's start with Israel. Am I way wrong when I see Israel giving up terrorists that have been that are in prison in exchange for the Israeli hostages? I see that and I think, wait a second, hold on. T tell me where I'm off. Well, I, I sort of had the same first reaction that you did. Um, my sense is that in order to prevent another October 7th, Hamas has to be completely annihilated. It has to be made history, and any pause in the fighting benefits Hamas. Um, but the way that it's been explained to me um, by people who you know understand Israel a lot more than I do, our colleague Joe Pollack, who spent a ton of time there um, in the past two months, is that the Israeli people really want their hostages back. It's a very small community. Everyone knows someone who knows someone who either knows a hostage, is related to a hostage. And so there's a tremendous amount of pressure on the Netanyahu government, which is already, you know, the buck stops with them in terms of who was in charge when October 2nd hap uh, 7th happened, um, to bring those hostages home, to give us something positive to keep moving, because the... Tremendous trauma and horror of 
that terror attack is really um, weighing heavily on people. So the Israeli government is just trying to bring back as many hostages safely as possible while still not totally um, destroying their chances of victory here. Far from it. Okay, so get the hostages back and then continue on with killing all of Moss. That's this is <laughs> that the end. seems to be the plan. All right, I guess I'm okay with that. Um, anything else about Israel we need to be caught up on, or is that kind of what's going on right now for the next couple of weeks? Well, something that caught my eye is there was a report in an Argentine uh, media outlet, actually, Infobuy, um, that said that Hamas doesn't actually have control of all the hostages right now. Um, that the hostages are being dispersed throughout Gaza. They're in random people's homes. They might be under control of other terrorist groups like Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Um, so it's it's not that Hamas can't get them back if they don't want to, but the chaos of Gaza is such that they don't even have full, uh, you know, custody of these hostages right now. Um, and there's no, you know, the Israeli government and Hamas are, haven't confirmed that, are not ever going to confirm that. Um, but it is very fascinating to me that there's evidence that Hamas might not even have full control of these people. Are you surprised that there's not more attention paid to the fact that there's 10 Americans who are still held hostage? There was the one four-year-old girl who was just released the other day, and that got rightful uh, you know, celebratory attention. Uh, but there's still 10 Americans over there. What, what do you make of this? Well, I think um, because of the international nature of the hostages that were taken, it's it's not just us that are having an issue with this. I mean, like I said, this report about the hostages was an Infobuy, which is an Argentine newspaper, because there's an Argentine child that's among them. And so there's a sense, especially on the right down there, that people are kind of forgetting that this isn't just an Israeli problem. There's Our people are there, too. Um, and there are more American hostages, and, and we're having the same issue. And I think it's just a combination of our media being so terrible at covering a story and explaining to you why you should care rather than just, you know, giving you this holier-than-thou explanation of geopolitics. Um, and it's also a sensory overload issue. I mean, how many news stories can an American take? You know, you turn on the news and every every 30 seconds, the 24-hour cable news channel has a new, new thing for you to be scared about. Um, and, and I think that's just why it's kind of getting lost. But absolutely, we should be emphasizing this more. It's not, it is not just a war between Hamas and Israel. It is Hamas deliberately took hostages from many countries in the free world, including ours, because they are at war with all of us, not just with Israel. Uh, let's go to Argen, uh, Argentina. So we got this new president by a lot. He won by a lot. Libertarian guy. Um, before we talk about him, what do we need to know about Argentina? Argentina used to be a very rich country, is my understanding. Where are they now? Yes, well, in the 1800s, they were one of the world's richest countries. Um, I think, you know, the, the Argentines will tell you that there was a point that they were the richest country in the world. Um, and I don't doubt it, but I couldn't tell you what year that wow. was. Um, I wonder why. Like, how? How, how were they? Because they're, you know, kind of far away from things. Well, like, how did they become they, the richest? Um, silver. Argentina, the, the name Argentina means land of silver. Um, uh -huh. And they sold a lot of silver. Um, and they also had this um, very fast development program where they they reconstructed a lot of the city. They used their wealth to, to build Buenos Aires. And then they had an immigration program where they invited basically any European with experience in um, construction, um, sort of manual labor to come and help build. Um, and they built this tremendously rich country. And essentially what happened is a series of military dictatorships followed by socialism. Um, it took the country down and, and they got into tremendous debt. And um, by the time you get to, um, you know, the 1980s, 1990s, you have a, a very chronic economic situation. They defaulted on their debt at some point, which completely destroyed their credit. Um, and it got worse and worse and worse until this year, you have inflation at something like 144%. You have poverty and joblessness through the roof. And you have um, sort of brain drain and the flight of young, educated people. Young people don't want to be in Argentina anymore. They don't see a future. Um, so that's how you get to a point where you elect a libertarian. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be that bad. 140% uh, inflation. Like, we can't even fathom that. We're, we're, we're at like, what, 12 or something? 
So a hundred and forty percent. That's that's that that can't. I mean, that can't be a thing. Like that, you can't live like that. I'm looking at yeah, the. They're uh, competing right now with with Venezuela and Zimbabwe. That's that's the category that they've fallen to from one of the richest, if not the richest, country on earth. Amazing. I'm looking at the architecture of uh, Argentina and just beautiful, stunningly, stunningly beautiful buildings uh, across Buenos Aires and and the whole country. Right, just to look at what this country used to be. And what they are now, it's such a, such a shame. We were just talking in the last hour about the, the, the rise and falls of cities and peoples and uh, the stages of it all. And uh, they, are, they are in stage six. <laughs> that's, not, that's the bad stage. That's, that's the end of it, friends. Um, okay, so tell me about this cat. Who is this guy? Do we like him or are we just like um, uh, he's a wrecking ball and we're pro wrecking balls? Well, you know, your mileage may vary, but um, I've been following Malay since about 2018, and I really like the way he presents himself and the way he presents his ideology, because it's all of the best things of libertarianism, which is don't trust the government, don't uh, trust, you know, sort of social justice boondoggles, don't trust in these agencies that are supposed to make things better, like something he says always is, Argentina has, I think, 18 federal-level ministries, including a ministry of women, a ministry of sport, all these unnecessary bureaucracies. Um, and he points them out regularly and says, this is a scam. They're stealing your money. <laughs> We're gonna get <laughs> Afuera! Afuera, oh. Francis! Afuera! Ex- exactly. Trump exactly. needs to take that. Afuera! <laughs> yeah, so, it's, so he's very clear about that. But something else I really love about Millet, which is something that I personally have had a big problem with American libertarians with, is that he is not afraid of the responsibility of being a world power. In his inauguration speech, he came out and he Mm. said, Argentina was a world power, we're going to be a world power again. And that kind of language of we want to have responsibility on the world stage is very different from the American libertarian perspective of America shouldn't be the world police, America shouldn't be involved in all these foreign problems, we should just care, take care of ourselves and have the smallest government possible. And that always kind of rubs me the wrong way uh, because I think America is a force for good in the world. I think America should, uh, you know, to the extent that it has the ability, make the world a freer, richer place because when we don't do that, the world becomes a poorer, more dangerous place, and inevitably that hurts us. Um, so Millet really is at odds with the idea that America should be less influential. He's a huge fan of the United States, and he's at odds with the idea that a small state can't have worldwide influence because he's out there saying, I'm going to cut the size of the government, but also we're going to be a respected world power, um, and we're, we're going to be you know, a force to be reckoned with internationally. So I, I think that's what divides him, I think, a bit from our American understanding of libertarianism. Yeah, it's very interesting. He said... Um... I did not come here to guide lambs. I came here to awaken lions. That's pretty good. That's an that's a interesting uh, mentality here. I want to talk more about this blend of libertarianism that he is. Um, so what first struck my attention with, with his libertarianism is, is he's pro-life. Now, I'm sure we can get some libertarians calling in who say, like, that's a pro-life thing. Sure. But I wonder if there's other, other things about his libertarianism that are different than... I don't know, like full-blown libertarianism, like how like his drugs and prostitution, all that stuff. How do you know how he stands on those libertarian issues too? Yes, he's pro all of that. He's gone far enough to say that he's even in favor of um, organ, you know, selling your organs. Um, but then he got a lot of pushback from that, and he said, "Look, this is not a priority issue for me." <laughs> okay, all right. in theory, uh, you know, the government shouldn't tell you what you can do with your body. Um, where he differs is, like you said, with abortion. And he would argue that if you believe that a child is a human being in a mother's womb, then that's the libertarian position is to oppose killing that person because yes. every person has a right to life. Um, so he would argue that's consistent with libertarianism. Um, same with the drugs and, and sort of the social liberalism, where he's different from the turn that a lot of American libertarians have taken is that he is very against the... Um, sort of LGBTQ stuff. He's pro-gay marriage, um, and he's pro kind of doing your own thing. He's very against the indoctrination in schools. He said that it's gone, the gender ideology in schools has gone too far, and that that 
is, um, you know, the state is now indoctrinating children to believe what they want to believe, and that's against his libertarianism. So in the United States, we've seen, I remember when Joe Jorgensen was running for president, she was talking about, you know, being in favor of BLM and, and all the gender ideology stuff, and that... Um, you know, that's a huge debate within the libertarian community. I don't want to kick that hornet's nest, yeah. but, but um, there is a segment of libertarianism in America that's a lot friendlier to the far left progressive LGBT, BLM kind of stuff. And yes, Millet is not there with them. Yes, interesting. Very, very good. Um, so last thing about Malay, Is he wacky? Or is that just his hair and his dance moves that I've seen on the internet? And he's just like, a, he's like a normal, respectable guy. Or is he like a crackpot? Um, I think, so I don't want to say exactly wacky and crackpot because that implies unserious. And I think he's very, very serious in the sense that he is a trained economist. He has very clear ideological stances. He has a plan. He's not just going in there with his crazy hair and, and winking it. He has a plan for being president. He's a serious person. Is he a total weirdo? Yes. Has he fronted a cover band? Has he been a soccer player? Has he been a tantric sex instructor? Yes. All of that is true. <laughs> he cloned his dog. He has four dogs that have been cloned from his original dog that he lost. He's very strange. Very weird person. Um, but is he serious? Yes, he is also very much a serious statesman at this point. Oh, wow, that's great. Okay, I can't wait to find out what happens. Because at this point, it's like Trump and the black vote. What have you got to lose? You know what I mean? It's Argentina. Like, <laughs> what are we doing? Just give it a go and see what happens. Um, you did write an article on Breitbart. Argentina's libertarian president, Malay, will be a nightmare for Biden. And you found this picture. Is he... Where is he? Where he's he's over this balcony, and there's the "Don't Tread on Me" flag uh, strewn across the the balcony that he's standing on. Um, but why will he be bad for Biden? Um, well, he's at the headquarters of La Libertad Avanza, which is his political party. Um, the Gadsden flag is all the rage in Argentina right now. It is what? like the most popular. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, they love it. They love us. They understand that it's an American tradition and they love us for coming up with you know this sort of political strain um love and it. they love the flag yeah um so uh how is it going to be a nightmare for biden well we've seen biden um number one biden has very little respect for latin america um we know this because when he was elected he refused to call any latin american leader for you know weeks um, when he was a candidate for president and uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who was a conservative, was president of Brazil during a uh, presidential debate, um, Biden threatened to destroy the Brazilian economy. No one really remembers this because he said it in such, you know, it's one of these Biden string of nonsense word salads. But he said that uh, if Brazil didn't take $20 billion to do climate change activism, that he, there would be serious economic consequences for Brazil. Brazil is one of our closest allies. Why are we threatening to destroy the Brazilian economy? Um, so, and then there's um, Biden's relationship with El Salvador under Nayib Bukele, who is very much um, a, he's, he's very much anti-migration uh, out of his country because he wants to renovate the country and he wants people to stay and build it. Um, he's had a huge problem with Biden because um, Biden's policy is basically open borders all the time and it oh. actively hurts the countries that that have people leaving. Um, and Bukele has been, you know, and, and also Biden has had a huge problem with Bukele on the gangs. Um, Bukele uh, enacted this huge crackdown on gangs, um, which uh, the Biden administration has questioned his um, it, as a violation of civil rights, that sort of thing. And Bukele has come out and said, you know, Trump helped us fight the gangs. I don't know what you're doing. He's like openly belligerent. Um, and Milei is just next level, you know. Um, Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro did threaten to invade us after Biden threatened to destroy the economy. <laughs> but he didn't actually do anything. Um, and Bukele started out as a left-wing uh, politician. He was part of the establishment left-wing party before he got kicked out um, essentially for being obnoxious to the other members of the party. Um, Millet is from the right, from the hard right, has mm. a set of reforms that he wants to enact. 
Um, and I think it's going to be really difficult for Biden to handle, a, to give the respect due to a Latin American leader um, that has that much conviction, because Biden yes. has been very disrespectful to Latin Americans in the past. Mm, very good. Um, this El Salvador thing is very interesting. The, the idea that the president of El Salvador actually wants to build his country and wants his people to stay to build the country and make it better. Crazy concept. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know what happened is Biden broke the, the friendship that Trump had developed with El Salvador, and now Bukele is cutting deals with China. And China is putting in the money to build up all the, the infrastructure necessary to make it a great tourist destination. So we just, you know, unnecessary loss to China there, thanks to Biden. Mm, okay. Uh, the, this, this is all amazing stuff. Uh, wonderful analysis. The real reason I want to talk to you, though, was Ireland. And I, I feel like this is a, a little look into the crystal ball uh, here in America, perhaps, of Ireland. Give us the background of what's happening there. Well, I'll, I'll preface it with we don't know exactly what's going on because the police is being extremely secretive about what is happening. But essentially, there was a, a mass stabbing by a man. And there's no clear, you know, he's been described as an Irish citizen. Um, there's some news reports that he was originally from Algeria and has been a citizen for about 20 years. But none of that has been confirmed. So we can't really say what happened. We, we can say that a man stabbed some children in Ireland. That's about as much as the police will tell us. Um, but wow. because of the, the news that he might have been um, a migrant and just a lot of bottled up frustration in Ireland with the direction of the country under the left with mass migration, but also with the economy um, not being, you know, young people can't buy a house in Ireland. It's not, you know, if you think it's bad for us here, um, they really just, just that dream of having your own house and your own family, that's all essentially died, um, according to a lot of Irish people. And so there's all this frustration. And then there's this, um, on top of that, the layer of we're letting in so many people into this country and the government seems to prioritize their needs over our needs as citizens. And so you have these riots. And then there was the Conor McGregor element where he was out there basically inciting riots on Twitter. Um, and he's very beloved over there. Um, and there was a tremendous amount of violence um, in, in response to that. But I wish I could tell you more, but the police keep stonewalling basic facts about this stabbing. And so what, what Conor McGregor was saying to the people was essentially, we don't want to keep importing murderers to kill our children. I, I think that's almost verbatim what he said. But we don't even know if the person who committed the stabbing was, quote-unquote, imported. We don't know when. Um, and that all those question marks are causing more violence and more frustration. So as long as the police doesn't open up, I think this is going to be a powder keg for a while. Well, did you ever think in your life you would ever start an analysis with what Conor McGregor was saying was? <laughs> well, I, right? I started my career as a boxing journalist, so yeah. No way! <laughs> wow, this is yeah. what? It's just like totally on brand. Then that's unbelievable. That's like <laughs> like that's a quote you've been made. Yeah. You were made for that quote. You've been training your whole career for that sentence. Yes. Yes. Well, the. the um, the last time I wrote about boxing in any serious way, you know, Joe Calzaghe was still around. So it's, it's been a while. Wow. <laughs> this is the, was, the was coming together, the coming together of your two loves, international foreign policy <laughs> and, and uh, well, at least mixed martial art. We'll put well, boxing, fighting, coming together in one story for you. That's great. I love that. Um, well, listen, the, the story of uh, uh, people feeling, uh, and I, I would say rightfully so, but feeling that their government cares more about migrants than their own people. Uh, I've heard that story before, Francis. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, um, you know, I, uh, again, I'll preface this to say that my, my parents were refugees, and I'm tremendously grateful for, for America to take us in. But America is a very big country, and um, the way that migration was done 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, was at a pace where, you know, you have to adjust people to this life. I can tell you, being raised by refugees, you can't just toss someone in a new country and give them no direction and hope for the best, because they will not understand the most basic customs of being in your country. They simply will not. And it's not their fault. That's just humanity. Um, and a lot of these countries in Europe, um, in Ireland, in the Netherlands, even in, in the UK, in places like Birmingham, they're just 
bringing in, you know, thousands and thousands of people and not having any orderly process to incorporate them into society in a healthy way. And that's a disservice to everyone involved um, because it creates this situation where you have entire communities that are now 100% migrant and they have not been, um, you know, they, they have not been incorporated into the fabric of society. So they're living the way that they were living in the old country, the good and the bad, in these communities, and they have no real connection to the people there. And so that's where these divisions come from. Um, and a country like Ireland, you know, Dublin's not that big of a city. If, if you flood it with people who are from, uh, you know, from another country, another custom, another tradition, who are poor, and they can't even speak to you because they don't have a language, um, and there's no infrastructure for incorporating these people, um, again, you're hurting them, you're hurting the people that were originally there, um, and then there's this, you know, um, this complete, like, blackout of information. Um, everyone's just angry, and that's inevitably going to lead to violence if you don't create a situation where everyone feels respected and informed. Yeah, Dublin's half a million people. That's it. A little place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's last the size question. of, like, Newark. It is yeah. not very big. Yeah. That's right. Uh, last question. I saw a video, and I, this, this happens every once in a while, and it's always a surreal feeling. Where I thought it was fake, I wasn't sure what was what was going on here. It was a helicopter of at least this is what the video portrayed. Tell me if it was maybe it wasn't real of Houthi terrorists. I don't know what you call them fighters flying in on this shipping truck, this shipping container, ship like giant shipping truck tanker boat, whatever they call, it, and and landing on it and taking over the boat. And you're like, hold on, these people have helicopters. I remember I watched Captain Phillips and they just came in like a little dinghy. I didn't know they, they have helicopters now. What do we need to know about? And do they still have this tanker? What's going on with the, the Houthis? So the situation with the Houthis, and to clarify, yes, they're a terrorist organization. Biden delisted them for no apparent reason in 2021, but they are terrorists. Um, they, um, they do have significant uh, military equipment, including helicopters and, and sort of armored vehicles, that sort of thing, because they've been fighting a civil war in Yemen since 2015, um, and they've seized a lot of Yemeni military um, assets. And they also have support from, um, you know, tacit support, not openly, but from groups like al-Qaeda, um, and they're involved in drug trafficking. They're, they're relatively wealthy as far as terrorist organizations go. Um, so from what I can tell, they have tried to seize two tankers. Um, the first one was a Japanese tanker, I think, last week. Um, that they insisted was Israeli-linked, um, and it's not totally clear to anyone how it's Israeli-linked, but they um, <clears throat> they decided to seize it anyway and put the video out there to scare people. And then this weekend they tried to seize another tanker, um, which I think is called the Central Park, and that one was actually owned by an Israeli company, but um, the U.S. Navy showed up and, and the Houthis, well, we don't know exactly if it was Houthis, but the people who were trying to seize the ship fled and then immediately after that the houthis shot a bunch of missiles into the ocean um so it's believed that those were the houthis but no one has confirmed yet that that was them um the so other they... ship go ahead uh -huh. no please go ahead no the the other ship i think they still have in their custody that's what um, i was gonna but ask the second one they tried to so the japanese ship so is that the video i saw the japanese one yes With... yes wow so are these guys on the tanker are they allowed to shoot back at all I honestly don't, I'm not a maritime law expert. Um, I, I believe that there, someone must be armed there, but they were simply overwhelmed. Um, and we see this a lot even with armed ships. There was a, an incident in the Obama administration, I don't know if you guys remember, where there was a U.S. Navy ship that Iran seized, and they put out this really humiliating video yeah. of American sailors on their knees on their own ship. And those sailors were armed, but you get overwhelmed like that, and you know you have to be very careful with how you fight back um, and you have to take proper protocol to make sure that, you know, especially if you can tell that you're being taken as a, in, in a hostage situation, um, that you're, you're, if you're being taken hostage, you're worth something. Right. Um, so I, I imagine even if there were people armed on that ship, they wouldn't immediately just start shooting back if they see a helicopter just sort of <laughs> flying Jeez. at them. Um, there's what, only so much you can do. What's the end goal of the Houthis taking over this giant tanker ship? What, 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 what do you do with that? Um, it's it's a propaganda victory, and it's also to hurt commerce towards Israel, um, to give the impression 
Um, the video, the point of the video is propaganda. And it's essentially if you do business with Israel, if you try to conduct shipping near and around Israel, you have to worry about this now. Um, so it, it's to discourage investment in Israel, to discourage international commerce with the West generally. Um, and, and the Houthis are very closely allied to Iran. Um, they're funded by Iran. They're Shiites. Um, so they are, they're part of the bigger um, coordination network with Hamas and Islamic Jihad and, and the Sunni groups. So they're they're just kind of adding to the chaos to benefit Hamas and to hurt um, the Israeli industry. The wonderful Francis Martel. Are you going to be watching the title fight in San Francisco between Regis Progreus and Devin Haney for the WBC Junior Welterweight title? <laughs> I'll, I'll probably check out the highlights. Um, it's been so long that I... I honestly haven't been keeping up as, as much as I wish I could. Um, yeah, you got enough Houthi always, coverage, my, you know? My, my favorite thing is when I, it's Saturday night and I have nothing to do, and some like some channel just has like a featherweight match between two people I've never seen before, and it's like the most exciting match in the world. There you go, a little Francis Martel trivia for you. Francis, wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. So grateful. Uh, Breitbart World Editor. No one is better. There's no way anyone could be better. I'm American made. I got American parts. Thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. Thanks for getting up to gear with us. Uh, tomorrow, Oliver Lane from England will be with us because uh, I, we got to get more on Ireland. We got to figure out more what's going on there. It's so obviously where we are headed potentially in our country. So we got to be aware of it, be prepared for it. So we'll get some more update on that with Oliver Lane on tomorrow's show. That's at 640 Eastern time. We'll talk with Oliver. Mike Slater, Breitbart News Daily. We'll see you tomorrow. Spread the word. Come and learn.